Welcome to the Power Trends Podcast, produced by the New York Independent System Operator, where we discuss energy planning, public policy, and other issues affecting New York's power grid. Welcome to the Power Trends Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Lanahan, Vice President, External Affairs, Corporate Communications at the New York Independent System Operator. Today, we're joined by Dr. Nicole Bouches, who is Senior Principal Economist, Consumer Interest, Market Structures. She also serves as the NISO's Consumer Interest Liaison. I think that's where we're going to focus a lot of the discussion today, but we have a lot of things we want to go over with you, Dr. Bouches. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much. I'd like to start with, with your bio. You've been at the NISO for some time in roles of increasing responsibility over time. You also are head of the French club, fluent <laughs> yes, in I French. Am. You play the mandolin. I do. In the NISO band. I've seen that you play bluegrass collective of some sort. I do bluegrass jamming. Okay. So. But going back to your bio, you hold degrees from UC Santa Cruz and UC Davis. Yeah, so I did my undergraduate at UC Davis and my graduate work at UC Santa Cruz. I have a master's and PhD from there. Are you a California native? This is where it gets complicated. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I was born in Minnesota, born in Minneapolis. Love and Minneapolis. I, oh, it's a great. Yeah, I was just there. I was there, just there too. So I still have my extended family there. Okay. And then I grew up in the Netherlands. And so I went to French schools and then my father's French. My mother was American. And then we moved to Los Angeles when I was 15 years old. Okay. And then I went through the last few years of high school and all my college years in California. Okay. So interesting and diverse background with a set of diverse experiences across the, the world. Yeah, it's something that's been really sort of fun to bring a little difference, you know, into the organization. Yeah. The other thing I see is that you've been a lecturer at the University of London. Yeah. So after I got my graduate degree, my doctorate in Santa Cruz, I was hired by Royal Holloway and Bedford New College, uh, which is one of the colleges in the University of London. I was a lecturer there, which is the same thing as an associate professor here, and then decided academia was just not for me. I think I burned out a bit on research, okay. <laughs> and I also realized that I liked doing things that were not so theoretical, mm -hmm. is what basically what it came down to. So came back to California, decided I needed to figure out what I wanted to do next, spent a while traveling around the Southwest, which was really fun, okay. uh, doing car trips with friends and things like that. Well, looking for a job in the middle of a recession. And then the NISO recruited me from there. And I was very lucky. I have to admit, my first question to the NISO person I spoke to was, what is the New York ISO and where is Albany? Yeah. <laughs> um, I was not an East Coast person. So you joined the NISO in, in 2003. But let's focus on what you're doing now. It's a significant role. Explain to folks the significance of this role and, and what it is you're doing almost on a day-to-day -day basis with working with the certain market participants. It's a really interesting, unique role because what we do at the NISO is really geared to consumers, <laughs> ultimately, right? Reliability is geared to consumers and having the most efficient market possible is also geared to consumers. There are many stakeholders who participate in our process. But consumers and the end use sector, which is what we call it, this is not their primary business. And they wanted some additional support to understand and to figure out what was happening in market design changes made sense for them or not. So my job has several aspects to it. One is that I meet regularly with the end use sector. 
and talk to them about what's going on in our market design side. What is the stakeholder process? What is coming up? What is going on? What are the big topics? So I meet with the end use sector every month and we talk about what's coming up in our committee process and in terms of market rule changes. I also bring in some of the subject matter experts and they get to hear firsthand. From the NISO. From the NISO, yeah, exactly. So the market design specialists who are actually there working on the projects. And when we say the, the end use sector, let's identify who some of those groups are. We have some big, of industrial, big consumers. industrial consumers. We have some of the universities. Some of those participate actively, some of them less actively. So in these discussions, it really sort of depends. And the other thing that this position does is consumer impact analyses. Every year, we pick a few projects and do sort of a more extensive analysis of the impact of the project on consumers. And that is looking at impacts on reliability, impacts, financial impacts, impacts on new technology, and all different aspects of it. Typically, there are approximately three to four a year get done that way. Now, that's something that I'm still learning the process of. It is on an annual basis, and they tend to happen toward the end of the year. So we're currently sort of full blast on doing those at the moment. So you're a conduit between that sector, what's happening with market design, what's happening with planning, the governance process itself. I imagine you're showing up to meetings in the governance process with a keen eye towards the comments that you're going to hear from that sector. Yeah, and, and I'm also the, a point of contact for them. If they have a question, if they're looking to understand something very specific that's happening in any of our parts of the NISO, I often get the question and help find the person that's right to talk to them. How would you describe the current agenda that they have these days? What are their concerns or what they're focused on these days? Consumers are always concerned about costs. Mm -hmm. They're also concerned about the technology switch that's happening and how smooth that's going to be. They're concerned about reliability, as we all are. I think the concerns are the same that they've been in a long time. It's just that the environment has changed. <laughs> so a lot of uncertainty with what's coming down the road translates into a lot of questions and a lot of concerns. And in this case, when you use the word environment, we're talking about the policy. Yeah, sort of the policy arena, but also um, technology, right? Okay. So we know that there are technology gaps in what we are going to need in the future. And I think the end use sector has got a lot of questions about how that's going to be managed. What are some of those reports that can you share with us are, are maybe coming up? We have a capacity accreditation project that's really looking conceptually at how do we value what a different types of units bring to reliability. And that's what we base our capacity market on. We have an LCR optimization. We're going to have to explain that. Bit. We're going to have to go into that. We have capacity requirements that are locational, and we have a way of calculating those. And we are in the process of looking at a more efficient way of calculating those. So it's capacity requirements on a local basis. We've talked a lot on the podcast about the capacity markets and how that works with energy, et cetera. But this is capacity requirements on a localized well, basis. Yeah, so we have um, statewide capacity requirements, and then we have a locational, which are based on capacity locations. And you can think of those as sort of like New York City and the Southeast New York and Long Island as, the, as those localities. 
But the question is always, how do you calculate those relative to each other and relative to the requirement as a whole? The methodologies have changed over the years as we get more experience and more understanding and better tools. And so this is looking into a new tool set. So we're currently looking to like sort of optimize and reduce consumer costs essentially by doing that. Now, the tricky thing is that that would be consumer costs as a whole. Now, there could be winners and losers within that. And that's where it gets tricky. We're doing a lot of simulations. And I'm currently awaiting the results of some simulations on that. So that's going to be valuable to that sector. Yeah, absolutely. So we're looking at that from a cost perspective. Cost and reliability and new technology. We're looking at what the the sum total of the impacts, because sometimes it's too easy to say just, oh, cost. So we deal both with qualitative, sort of how is it going to increase the quality of reliability? And then we also try to quantitatively say, okay, yes, we expect prices, for example, in this area to go up and for this product by that much. The evaluation has both data for quantitative estimates. Often it's the direction, the change that makes more difference. How do you decide which reports you're eventually going to uh, undertake? Is this a back yes. and forth with the sector? We have a set of criteria that we use that is based on the expected market impact and the expected consumer impact and the general size of that. But a lot of it is what is going to make a difference. Going back to your behavioral economics Mm -hmm. reference, how do the the market participants in this sector interact with these reports and and the analysis that you put out? You spend a lot of time doing this, right? What's the value to them within the governance process and within their uh, efforts to run their business? The good thing is that they're considered very valuable to the end use sector because it helps inform them how they vote ultimately on projects and on tariff changes. Interestingly enough, it is not just the end use sector, though, that values them. This information is available to the entire marketplace. And I have members of other sectors who actually check in with me occasionally and say, hey, when can we expect to see results on this? So your principal customers are these sectors, but it's a value to the rest of the sectors and the rest of the marketplace as well. Absolutely. Another project that's a little bit earlier in the process is balancing intermittency. We're going to have more intermittent resources in the future, more wind and more solar. So they're sort of looking conceptually at some of the ideas. Next year, it's going to go into an actual market design complete process. So the rules will be tightened down more on that. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of eyes on this. Yeah, exactly. I think there's a lot of interest in there. But when, you, when you're when you considering a completely new thing, technology-wise, it takes a little while and it takes a lot of very smart people to think through those rules. Taking all these projects together, looking at them combined, I mean, you get a, a real picture of the changing dynamic yeah. system and uh, as you keep saying, the role of advancing technology. And Would you say that this role and, and the way you approach it is unique among ISOs and RTOs, do you have a portfolio and approach that's, uh, again, unique and, and distinct? It is. It's a very different role to be in the ISO and to be really sort of involved with a lot of the projects as well. A lot of the data that we use to do this evaluation is systems data that would not be easily accessible. And we are able to leverage that data to do the analyses, which is really quite yeah, exciting. Yeah. Shifting gears for just a minute, I want to ask you this question because as I was going back through my notes and trying to remember your work on carbon pricing, you did co-chair 
on our task force, when we looked at a carbon pricing proposal back in 2017, it's hard to conceive of that, that that time has passed since then. But we just filed at the Public Service Commission new comments that reference back to the carbon pricing proposal and all that work that happened then as an economist and as the person that co-chaired that, that effort. Can you give us our views on carbon pricing again? I think uh, there's some renewed interest here and it might be worth. Uh, I think what we're offering is that we have sort of a designed mechanism that is available if there is interest in it. And what that is, is a way to have directly a carbon charge reflected in the energy market based on a carbon price that would be set by the state. How that state sets it is beyond the scope of what we've looked at. It's a mechanism that's efficient and works with the wholesale market and very integrated with the wholesale market. It's a very exciting idea, but it's not the only idea out there. And so I think our filing was really to say, hey, everyone, remember, we still have this. If it's useful to the state, we can definitely work with the state to implement it. So in sort of an elevator speech approach, I mean, if somebody says, well, how is it useful and why is it useful? Let's try and um, explain that to folks. So integrating the cost of carbon into a wholesale energy dispatch does one thing beautifully. It orders the dispatch in the right way. We say dispatch. These are the generators that are going to line up inside of our market to eventually serve load. Yeah, exactly. It's the ones that we're going to actually tell to turn on. And so the question is, who do we tell to turn on? And currently, we tell to turn on the cheapest ones around, basically. That's the easiest way to think about it. Incorporating a carbon charge in that dispatch says if two generators are the same price, but one is more carbon emitting than the other, we will take the less carbon emitting one first. That's the ordering of the dispatch effect. Adding that into the dispatch allows that all to happen almost like magic. I mean, it's all equations ultimately, but it's really neat because it sort of just flows out. Now, it could be that there's somebody who's emitting and really, really cheap, and in which case we'll take them. And the question about where that one lands is on how much are you valuing that carbon? And that's why the state is so important in deciding how much it's worth it. Because from then on, it all just flows out in terms of getting the right dispatch. So that unit that you just referenced, if it is emitting, is going to have to pay. Yeah. So a carbon price is where each unit has to pay proportional to their carbon emissions. So when unit is going to pay zero. And wind and solar and hydro, <laughs> for example. And then a inefficient unit is going to end up paying an inefficient means that they use more, for example, natural gas than another unit that that's, you know, think of your very new car versus the 1970s car, right? <laughs> They're both using gas. <laughs> One of them is using a lot more gas to the same mileage. And so because the amount of carbon depends on the amount of fuel that's used, they are going to be emitting a lot more, and so they're going to pay a lot more. And so you're going to pick that more efficient car over the 1970s clunker most days. So it creates incentives in the markets yeah. to advance our decarbonization goals more efficiently yeah. and faster. The other thing, though, that it does, which I really like, is that it saves those inefficient units for the days that we really, really need everybody to be available. Because most of the time, we can run the system without the inefficient units. There are days when load is such that we need sort of all hands on deck. You so, want to make sure that you can meet those demands. 
And it's sort of neat because you end up keeping the units and running them very, very little, but you keep them for reliability. Um, as opposed to other ways of of regulating high emitters, right? Other ways of regulating high emitters is to say, well, you don't get a permit, for example. Well, yeah, they won't operate if they don't have a permit. But on the other hand, on that hottest day of the year, they also won't operate. And that's where measures that are really sort of integrated with the markets, I think, make a lot of sense to have. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. I want to go back to where we began in terms of your philosophy and view of the role what is it that sets this role apart from what you've done before? So what is how outward facing it is? Oh, um, I have spent a lot of time as an economist and working on market design things within the NISO. And although we work through committees, most of the work is actually done internally. In terms of my philosophy, it's really providing information so that people can judge for themselves what exactly they need from the market. Now, it's hard, right, because every organization that's active in our market has their own fiduciary responsibilities, right? They have to do what makes sense relative to their stockholders and their owners. But as the NISO, we can provide unbiased information into that process that is incredibly valuable. And so my view is that I'm really trying to leverage that information and provide information that is useful from the NISO. Impartial facts, data, yeah, so that the marketplace can make the best decision. Exactly. Interestingly, I mean, uh, this is only part of my role. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other part of my role is senior principal economist. So I'm working with the organization, both in market design, but also more broadly, in terms of what are good economic decisions and what is efficient in our markets. Not only do I get to look at specific projects and evaluate what the impact is, but I also get to participate in the how do we get there mm -hmm. discussions and what is good market design. I work with individual market design specialists who are the ones who are actually doing the designing and they will discuss what trade-offs things are bringing to the table. How to adjust the markets for the new resources we know are, are going to show up and the new ways that they're going to operate. Exactly. And what is the future going to look like, ultimately? Do you want to expand on that a little bit? Based on your schooling, your experience here, and now what you're doing, how do you see the future? Well, I'm really excited about it. I've been working in the emissions, sort of carbon side of our market for a long time now. I think that there is a desire to move our carbon emissions as a country and as a state. It's taking us down a future that I could have never anticipated in 2017 when we started this. That is a really exciting time for consumers and for all New York State people because it's going to be a lot of change. And you of all people put in a tremendous amount of work into the carbon pricing yeah. project. Do you think we made progress in, in some ways? I think we made huge project. Yeah. We have it at the position where we have all the information needed. And if it's useful to the state, we can implement it, which I think is a huge victory to have that additional tool available. There are other ways too, right? The NICI, the New York Cap and Invest, is another mechanism that can work both with the carbon pricing or without the carbon pricing. That's elegant uh, detail to the, to the proposal we put together. Yeah, fit in it can fit in with it or not. And NICI is another very exciting area, very challenging for the state, and the state has a lot of work to do on it. And I think we're following it closely as well. But that's another very exciting to see how the climate policy is being implemented. 
I'm generally optimistic, though, so I tend to be excited about the future. (laughs) Well, it's been incredibly interesting and also a great pleasure. I appreciate you spending some time with us today. Oh, thank you so much. It's fun to talk about these things. Thanks again, Nicole. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. As a reminder, the New York Independent System Operator, NISO for short, is responsible for reliably managing New York's power grid and energy markets and providing independent data to policymakers and the public. For more independent info, please visit the NISO blog at www.nyiso.com blog.